Josh Scott uh, has been a friend of Grace Point for a long time. Some of you will remember that he's spoken for us twice before since the summer. I particularly appreciate his thoughtfulness, and I am always intrigued. So Josh and Carla are here with us again to share, and I am delighted to welcome you both. Thank you. Thanks, man. Good morning. It is great to see you. I was just remembering, last time I was here, I think it was in November, and I woke up that morning uh, and drove down, and I had like a, like a bug, some sort of virus or something, so I don't have a lot of memory of that. I hope it went okay. Um, I did make it safely home. That was good news, but uh, I feel really good today, except for that, that hour that was robbed from me last night. I'm a little bitter about that, but it's so good to be here with you. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, how, how many of you grew up observing seasons like Lent? Okay. How many of you didn't? Okay. So I, I didn't grow up with those sorts of things either. And actually, we were really suspect of people who did. Um, we weren't sure about you. Um, but what I found in my, uh, as I'm getting older, that those seasons and rhythms of the calendar are really grounding for me. And they're really, really helpful. And, and so we're in the season of Lent. And of course, Lent comes from this old English word that means lengthen. And it's about lengthening days. It's about the arrival of spring. And for people in the Christian tradition, it's about preparing ourselves to celebrate resurrection, to celebrate um, this reality that we, we acknowledge on Easter. And so today's the first, season of, uh, the first day of the season of Lent. And all over the world this morning, people are reflecting on the text in Luke 4, where Jesus is tempted in the desert. How many of you know that text? So Jesus is baptized. He goes out into the desert and then he's met by the tempter after fasting for 40 days. And he's uh, tempted with three temptations, which he withstands. And I got to tell you, that episode in the life of Jesus has always um, sort of captured my imagination and my attention in, in ways that other things haven't. Because some of the things in the life of Jesus, if we can just be honest, aren't as easily relatable right? How many of you have ever walked on water? Like there's a story in the Bible, Jesus walking on the water, right? How many of you ever done that? Anybody ever tried? Like you just you start running at the water and you think, I'm going to do it, and you don't, right? How many of you have ever participated in a mass feeding where you feed 5,000 people plus? Anybody done that? Okay. You, you have? Yeah. My wife does that every day with all of our children. Um, <laughs> we do mass feedings regularly. Uh, I mean, how many of us, there's so many stories, uh, healings, like there's so many stories in the Gospels that just aren't super relatable, but this story about temptation is super relatable, right? We all know temptation. We all know that pull um, that temptation brings. And I actually brought something today that I want to share with you. Um, This is sort of a public confession. I, I have a problem, and my problem is that they're making these new Oreos. And I want to show you this. And you can't have it. I mean, not on the way home. So look at this. And it's a little smushed. Do you know what this is? Friends, this is not an Oreo. Don't demean it by calling it Oreo. This is not a double-stuffed Oreo. This, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people, is a mega-stuffed Oreo. It's like 400 calories for one cookie. (laughs) Right? And so... uh, it began when my parents brought these up into my house and allowed my children to have them. And then I thought, oh, I like Oreos, I'll have one. And you know, one Oreo leads to two, 
and two Oreos lead to three, and three Oreos lead to shame, right? And that's where I found myself. I actually bought, I bought a package of mega stuffed Oreos to, so I could bring one to show you, and I'm not going to tell you what I've done to it this week. It's been, it's been bad. But we all understand, like, we have those things, right? Those temptations, those things that pull us, that call to us, that um, maybe pull us away from the place we want to be. Um, and, and I think the way I've usually read the temptation story of Jesus is that way, right? So he's being tempted, uh, and, and there's sort of a, a micro reading of the story, and that's the way I've always approached it, which is you get down in the details, and you realize that in, these tempt, in this temptation story, there's something going on. Jesus is sort of reenacting the story of Israel. They wandered in the wilderness and were tempted for 40 years, and here's Jesus in the desert for 40 days, right? Symbolism, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And the, all these temptations in some way find their root in the story of Israel. So Jesus is is facing, he's retelling the story of Israel, but he's telling it in such a way where in the places that there was failure, he's, he's moving forward. He's not giving into temptation. That's how I've always read that. And I think that's a valid reading of the story. I mean, you can look at the, hey, turn these stones into bread, right? What was one of the struggles in the wilderness? We don't have any food and we want to go back to Egypt, right? And so God does this thing where he provides manna, right? And so this is all connected. But I think there's a way to read this on a macro level, or there's something going on in this story that is deeper than, than just sort of the individual temptations that Jesus faces. And to see that, you have to go back. You have to go back to Luke chapter 3. Not just read the temptations, but read what comes before it. And we actually just heard it. Jesus is baptized by a man named John. Now, John the Baptist was sort of your, your wild and crazy. He's being cast as sort of Elijah-like figure. He's wearing camel hair and leather. I mean, he, so he would fit right in in most, in most cultures today. Who doesn't wear camel hair and leather everywhere? Eating locusts and honey, and he's out in the desert baptizing people. Now, for us, who, if you grew up in the Christian tradition, baptism is sort of like, you see it happen, you're like, oh, yeah, baptism. But in the culture and the, the practice uh, of John, baptism was something that prepared you for entry into the temple. It was a purification ritual. So baptism would happen not out in the desert. Baptism would happen at the temple. It was a religious rite that prepared you for entry and worship. But John's not at the temple. John is out in the desert. And you know there are parents going, do not follow that man out into the desert, right? You know, and yet they're out there. And Jesus is so compelled. And John's baptism is about not purity, but about repentance. Um, and that word, repent, how many of you get the heebie-jeebies when you hear that word? Does anybody hear that word, repent, and you're like, ooh, like all over? Um, and that's actually unfortunate because uh, red-faced street preachers have made it that. The word repent literally just means to return or to change your mind. And we've all done that at some point, right? We've all found the need. We've, we've maybe, like the song we sang, we've wandered away and we need to return. We all know what it's like to, I, I need to think differently about God or about my neighbor or about myself. We all know what that's like. And John is doing that sort of work. He's preparing people for the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes out and is baptized by John. And Jesus has an experience at his baptism. Uh, and I'll just tell you, this was not my experience at my baptism. Heaven did not open at my baptism. Uh, but it did for Jesus. And he's baptized, and the heavens open, and then there's this voice, and the voice says, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. Jesus has this moment. He's baptized. He comes up out of the water, and the heavens open, right? It's sort of a, a flashback to creation, 
right? It's a flashback to the crossing of the Red Sea. It's this big epic moment, and this dove descends, and Jesus hears, you are the beloved. I am pleased with you. Now, what has Jesus done in his life up to this point? Does anybody know? What has Jesus done? A big old goose egg of nothing, right? Jesus has done nothing that we know of that's remarkable. No mass feedings, no healings, no teaching, no parables. Jesus' greatest hits came later, right? This is Jesus before all that. This is just Jesus, the, the guy who's been living his life and doing nothing that we know of remark, remark, remarkably. Um, it seems odd that this would be the moment. Like, you can totally see after Jesus does something really cool, the heavens opening and God going, yeah, right? Like that sort of affirming that. But Jesus hasn't done anything. And he gets told he's the beloved. How many of you in this room are parents? You know this in your bones then. The moment you held your child for the first time, what had they done? Pretty much just caused you pain and indigestion. Like that's what they had brought to the table. And when babies are born into the world, what, what are they able to do? What do babies do? They cry. They cry and they use the bathroom all over themselves and you, right? They can't feed themselves. They can't even tell you what they want. And yet, when you talk to a new parent, they'll hold that baby and they'll say, isn't she amazing? And nobody goes, well, not really. <laughs> she can't do anything. She just lays there like a little lump of flesh, like she can't do anything. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he so smart? No, he's not smiling. He has gas. Like You need to know that, right? We, we intrinsically know this with our children. They enter the world, bring nothing to the table yet, and yet we look at them and we think, my heart has left my chest and now it's walking out around the world. We know that. In this moment, I, I think what's happening here, these temptations aren't just about their individual pieces. Because the moment Jesus has this experience, he then leaves his baptism and goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he is tempted. And the temptation begins, if you are God's son. He has this moment, you are the beloved son, in you I find great joy. He goes out into the desert and the first thing that's out of the tempter's mouth is, if you are the son of God. If. If. That brings doubt into the equation, doesn't it? If you're God's son, I, I just wonder, is there a moment where it's like, am I really God's son? Am I really God's kid? Am I really the beloved? Is that really who I am? Jesus has this powerful identity-shaping moment, and immediately upon leaving that moment, that identity is called into question. See, I think the temptation here is not just to turn stones into bread or take a flying leap off the temple or worship the tempter. I think the real temptation here is will you own your identity as the beloved and trust it? Or will you allow all this other stuff to derail you and sidetrack you? Now, I know what we tend to think. What we tend to think is that, oh, that's a Jesus problem, right? Jesus is the beloved son. Jesus brings God joy, not me, not you. But the reality is, is I think what, what so many of us have been learning and what you guys have been learning at Grace Point over the years is 
Jesus isn't the exception. Jesus is the rule, right? Jesus isn't the exception that there was this one amazing human being who lived and was the beloved and brought God joy and everybody else God's very indifferent about. See, the reality is what is true of Jesus in that moment is also true of us. You are God's beloved. You bring God joy. Now look, that does not mean that you're perfect. I bet if we talked to the people who knew you really well, they would be able to say, nope, not perfect, and let me give you a list of reasons why, right? And I don't think any of us walk around with the illusion that we're perfect. I think we all know we have issues, we have hang-ups, we have faults, we have mistakes, we, we do things we don't want to do and shouldn't do, and it happens anyway. Like, we do all that stuff, we know that. We know that we're not some sort of have risen above everything and we're perfect, but that's the thing about this. This, this, this announcement you are the beloved, happens to Jesus before he's done anything. The fact that Jesus is means he's beloved. And the fact that you and I are, the fact that we exist, means that we are also God's beloved. Jesus is the the rule, not the exception. And I know when we hear this language, like you are God's beloved, you bring God joy immediately there's this little inner monologue that goes, really, I'm God's kid? Really? Do you, do you know what I did to that person in traffic the other day? Do you, do you know what I said to my partner the other day? Do you know how epically I failed my children the other day? Right? How, how many of you have that monologue going in? The moment you're like, yeah, maybe I am God's kid. Maybe I do bring God joy. And you're like, no, I used the middle finger way too much last week. I can't have been bringing God very much joy. Right? Like, There's this sense of, yeah, that's what we get told at church, but it's not really the truest thing about us. And the thing about Jesus is, in this moment of temptation, he just withstands it. But he withstands it not because he has some sort of weird Jedi power, right? Where he's like, and it's all fine. Jesus withstands this temptation because he understands who he is and he's trusted it. He's trusted that he is the beloved. He has trusted that there is a path before him and the only way you walk that path is by knowing who you are and knowing how God feels about you. And Jesus withstands this temptation because he knows who he is. I wonder how many of us, the greatest issue in our life, ultimately, is knowing who we really are. I mean, we tend to define ourselves and other people by our mistakes, right? That's how we know people. That's how we define people. Um, I know we talk a lot about forgiveness, but if you've been with your um, spouse for a long time or your partner for a long time, I bet you, you can remember what they did in 1987 that made you so mad. I know you can, because we have long memories. We have long memories when it comes to grudges, and we have short memories when it comes to things we're grateful for. And, and we just intrinsically, like, know, yeah, yeah, I'm not really the beloved because of all of that. Jesus trusts it. He owns that identity. He trusts who he is. And for far too long, part of the reason we struggle with this is that for far too long, the Christian tradition has been telling people the opposite. Right? We just celebrated Ash Wednesday this past week, which just kicks off the Lent season. And Ash Wednesday is usually this moment where we all come together and talk about how horrible we are right? Like being human is like the worst thing ever. And yet when you read the stories of scripture, when you read the Psalms, it says, what are human beings? We're a little less than divine and have been crowned with glory and honor. To be human in the Bible is to be exactly what you're supposed to be. 
how do you become something other than human? Like, I know we love animals, but how many of you would trade places with a dog? Like, being human isn't something you have to rise above. The problem is we often live beneath our humanity, right? The worst things we do to each other, the hate, the bigotry, the violence, all that stuff is not because we're human. It's because we choose to live in ways that are underneath our humanity. They're subhuman ways because we haven't trusted who we really are. As our church in Kentucky was going through a lot of our unraveling theologically, um, we were trying to figure out what to do with our youth because we always took our youth to camp every year. And so we decided, we ended up going to the camp that I went to as a youth and that I'd worked at. And we, we go into the, the camp environment. It was, a, it was only a weekend camp, so we thought we could, that would be far less to detox the children from. And then we get to play in the lake. It was sort of like bad theology, but a big blobby thing in a lake. And that's just the big blobby thing one. And we go to the initial meeting with the camp pastor. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, and he says, you know what? I'm not going to try to scare your kids this weekend. I'm not going to try to make them feel terrible about themselves. Uh, we're going to talk about how much God loves them. I was like, oh, we might be okay here. And it was like the first night, I was like, is that the same human being who just told me he's not going to shame my children? Because it ended up being heavy on fallenness and how horrible and depraved and awful we are. And after the gathering was over, we were gathering our students up to go and tell them that everything they'd just heard wasn't true. Their parents paid $300 for them to be lied to for a weekend. And we noticed, I noticed across the room that one of our counselors is sitting with a kid from another church he didn't know, and the kid is just weeping uncontrollably. And so um, just sort of eavesdropping on the conversation, and you hear this kid say, I'm just a horrible sinner. There is nothing good in me. And fortunately, our counselor said, how old are you? He said, 11. He's like, you're not a horrible sinner. There is good in you. And he tried to tell that kid who he really was. Because for 11 years, he'd been told he was nothing. And in that moment, somebody got to look somebody else in the eyes who thought they were worthless and say, you're actually God's beloved child. And he probably didn't use these exact words, but in you, God finds happiness. I mean, it all ultimately boils down to knowing who we are and owning it. That's not a prideful thing to do. What, knowing that you're God's kid and that God finds joy in you, that's not prideful. That's the basics of your identity as a human being. Can you imagine if we began to live out of that, what would happen? What the world would be like? What our world would be like? Because here's the thing. When you trust this is true, and I don't have this down, by the way. I, I hear rumors that when you trust this is true, it changes not only how you see yourself, but it changes how you see everybody else around you. Because when you think there's nothing good in you, you look at the other person over there and you go, there's nothing good in them either. But when you begin to own who you are, when you see yourself, when you hear in whatever way you hear it, the divine voice say to you, you are the beloved of God and in you God finds happiness. When you trust that, you can look and you can begin to see that in the most annoying human beings on the planet. You can go into Walmart and see it, y'all. And if there is a place where there's not a lot of good going on, it's typically been my experiences, it's at a supermarket. And yet, you can walk around and you can begin to see that in other human beings. 
our greatest problem isn't that we don't believe the right things about God. It's that we begins with not believing the right things, the true thing about us. I've always said that bad theology leads to bad anthropology, right? And when you have a poor understanding of God, you have a poor understanding of humans, but you can also say when you have a poor understanding of humans, it leads to a poor understanding of God. And what we see in this beautiful moment with Jesus is him owning who he is, and it transforms his experience of the world. My invitation to us today, what would it look like for us to own that? What would it look like for us to say, yes, I am God's beloved, and yes, I do bring God joy? Kids can be annoying sometimes. If you've been around them, you know this, right? And when they know what buttons to push to set you off, it's even more frustrating. And yet, at some points they sleep. And, and when they go to sleep, you just, I'm, I'm telling you to do this, just look at them. And you will think, no matter what they've done to you that day, they're a perfect angel. Right? Because they bring you such joy. Nothing you do changes that, right? You are God's beloved. You bring God joy. Now, what if you wake up tomorrow and live as if that were true? My goodness, that could change everything. Are you with me? All right, let's pray. God, we are grateful for this day. We're grateful for skies that aren't pouring rain. We are grateful for a room full of people to sing with, and to reflect with. It's my prayer for us that today we'll open our ears and we'll open our eyes, we'll open our hearts in whatever way we need to hear it, to hear that divine voice say to us, you are the beloved, and in you I find happiness. Give us the courage to live as if that were true. Allow that reality to infect us deep down in our bones. Because we live in a world that desperately needs to know that it's loved. And may the world begin to hear that in our lives, in our interactions, and from our experience. We offer this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Can we thank Josh?